Welcome, America. This original podcast special episode of The Mark Levin Show is brought to you exclusively by our friends at Hillsdale College. Folks, as students across the country graduate from colleges and universities, I'd like to highlight my favorite college, Hillsdale College. Hillsdale is where our young people receive the best classical liberal arts education in America. Students also abide by an honor code, ensuring unity of purpose and intelligent debate. And the best part? You can learn from Hillsdale for free through Primus and free online courses on American history, the Constitution, and other subjects. See for yourself, folks. Learn more about Hillsdale at levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. levinforhillsdale.com. On this special podcast, I have a special man who is a special friend of mine, the president of Hillsdale College, Larry Arn. Dr. Arn, how are you, sir? I'm very well. I have fun watching you become a great man, which you've now done. Well, thank you. You're, you're not so bad yourself, you know, Professor. <laughs> now, let's, let's start with a broad question. Is America declining or rising? Well, right now it's declining. Uh, it, uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's uh, there's staggering facts. Uh, we don't make up the same percentage of the world's strength as we used to, and we are, meanwhile, willfully weakening ourselves. So, yeah, there's a lot of problems. Having said that, uh, we have the asset that matters the most. We have the key. We have the best political account ever given of how human beings ought to live together. And we have the best constitution to guarantee that. And the constitution, although assailed on all sides, is still there. So we have to restore it and strengthen it. But if we start down that path, we will separate ourselves from the rest of the world so fast it'll make your head spin. Are you concerned? In fact, are you surprised how fast uh, the society and culture can be changed? Literally. In a few years, I mean, these things have been building and building and building. But nonetheless, I think from my perspective, there's almost a sprint to whatever, wherever the finish line is, if there is ever a finish line on changing our institutions or destroying our constitutional construct, rejecting the whole idea, of the declaration for Marxism. Uh, it's really quite a heavy load right now, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's uh I can't remember who said it, but that famous thing, how do you go bankrupt? The answer is slowly and then suddenly. And this has been building a long time. And one thing that's changed, uh, first of all, the ideology is radicalizing uh, along a predictable path. Uh, This this craziness was implicit from the beginning in the doctrines that grew up in America beginning in the 19th century. You've written a book about that. Uh, But now... It's institutionalized in, mm-hmm. in, to an amazing degree. It's uh, 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 since 2000, my favorite statistic of late, uh, students in schools has grown 7.5%, teachers in schools have grown 8.5%, and administrators in schools have grown 92%. Wow. And they, and they now uh, about the same, slightly outnumber the teachers. Well, what do they do? I mean, first of all, just picture in your mind a school. A school's got classrooms and a teacher. 
And if the teacher is not competent to teach in the school, it can't be done from outside. Uh, you can't do it by rules. You do it in conversation with the students, and you do it by knowing things and loving things. So now what we've done is we've tried to substitute for that a set of rules that are made by powers at the center, and they control uh, about half the staff, but they control most of the money because they make more money than the teachers do. And they're in the seat of power, and it's central services. Reminds me of the movie Brazil. You can't fix your air conditioning without Mm -hmm. forms and federal officials. So that's, but, but education is not special. We've done that in every section of the economy. And there's a vast force. And it's, it's very interested in politics. The old argument of the progressives was, if you gave these people tenure and gave, gave them rules to live by, then they wouldn't have any interest of their own and you wouldn't need separation of powers. Well, look at, you know, who gives money in politics today? Where does the money come from? And the answer is, in one way or another, it comes out of the federal and state establishment, which is more than half the economy. Mm-hmm. So the American people are beset by a vast force. Uh, in the Declaration, one of the complaints is he has sent among us swarms of officials to eat out our substance and harass our people. Well, I think that's what's happening today. And... Um do you think that most politicians, even so-called conservative politicians, are aware of the extent of the ideological uh, effort that's underway? Because I think uh, a, a lot of Republicans are still playing patty cakes while the culture is being devoured. Maybe I'm wrong about that. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Well, see, if uh, um, the, the old idea of education was... When you're young, you need to take the opportunity before you begin your career to figure out fundamental things. And one fundamental thing is political distinctions. What kinds of nations are there? And, you know, that's the first politics, which is mostly written by Aristotle. That, that, that is an analysis of that. Who rules and in virtue of what? And so we can't think about that very well. We, we, uh, you know, the Republicans since Reagan, who got elected to the White House, Trump outside that, Trump's not, not true of him, they have built the bureaucracy, having promised not to do it. And I don't think they even knew they were doing it. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, I, I'm in the education business, and I love that business. I, I, I love to teach. I'm teaching this afternoon. Uh, but... I, if if you do it and work in it, you kind of know how it works, right? And the answer is the, the learning is in the student, in each student. And if they're not working hard at any moment, every moment, they're not learning anything. And then the people who help them, chiefly the teachers, they need to be right there with them. It's the last thing in the world that can be properly centralized. So <clears throat> these politicians... Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln got his education, you know, it's not fair. He got it out of his genius and he got it out of the King James Bible and the, and the, uh, Shakespeare, right? And, you know, in Shakespeare, if you just read the history plays, he'll tell you all about politics. It's really great. 
And so he got in his mind this idea that human beings move toward ends, toward proper ends. And in America, the ends are stated in the Declaration of Independence. But those ends have been completely transformed now, re- revolutionized. And and the doublespeak, which is a big feature of American politics today, is that uh, the Declaration of Independence is an evil document because it doesn't achieve real equality. But it says it does, so you can't get away from it, and yet you also condemn it all the time. So that's that means... You know, if if you think about the categories in Aristotle, they are material cause, what things are made of, uh, the efficient cause, how they're made, they're the formal cause, what they look like, and they're the final cause. What do they serve? Well, the final cause of America is stated in the Declaration of Independence, and the formal cause is stated in the Constitution. And those two things we are rapidly changing. Mm-hmm. So it's a complete revolution. You use this phrase, doublespeak. It's a very important phrase, as you know. Uh, the use of the language, the destruction and the abuse of the language. Uh, many Marxists have encouraged this. Uh, many Democrats have encouraged this. Many scholars have encouraged this and written about it. Linguistics. Uh, doublespeak, changing the meaning of words basically censoring certain words, creating new words. There's an awful lot of that going on today, too, that serves a purpose as well, correct? Yeah, you know, if you want to frighten yourself, read uh, the novel 1984, which yeah. I teach around here sometimes, where we're going to teach an online course on it next term. And what what's going on there is that uh, they are changing the language. Uh, there's something called Newspeak. And there's a character in it who works on that full time, you know, until like everybody else, they eventually arrest him and kill him. But what he what he's trying to do, he says, is make it impossible to have an unapproved thought by taking all the words out of the language that could convey such a thought. And that's, you know, that's very radical, right? It's impossible, but never mind that. It's it is the aim. You know, I mean, if you look at this anti-racism stuff, uh, the idea is that uh, race becomes fundamentally important to everything. And yet, at the same time as you assert that, you have to deny it. Mm-hmm. Doublespeak. And newspeak. You know, Orwell wrote also serious things. And um, one essay he wrote was about language and about the abuse of language, uh, some of which he borrowed from, frankly, Hayek, and um, mm-hmm. which is perfectly fine by me. We all borrow from Hayek in one form or another, I suppose. Oh, sure. But Newspeak, he was really talking there about the Soviet Union, wasn't he? That's right. And, and you know, these... Uh, uh, in, in Book 5 of Aristotle's Politics is the precursor to one of the many precursors to 1984. He talks about how tyrants sustain themselves because it's hard because people don't like it. You know, like bureaucracy is ubiquitous in America, but it isn't a good word. And nobody likes to be accused of being a bureaucrat. And so you have to get over that. 
And, and the way you do it is through struggle sessions. And Aristotle says they want people out in public all the time so they can be watched, but they don't want them to have close private conversations with friends. You can't have friendship <clears throat> because in communities of friendships, I mean, you know, you and I have known each other for, as I used to say, is, since Hector was a pup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we know each other, right? Know each other a long time. Knew, knew each other when we were young. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess we're still kind of young, I hope. <laughs> so, so, so that, that's a, that's a bond, right? And that, that, uh, it, tyrants don't like that because yeah. it, it means that you have some loyalty outside them. Uh, they don't like, tyrants don't like people to know things, to think about anything abstract or above. They like them to, you know, like the worst advice today that's given children, given schools is children ought to be up on current affairs all the time. And that's a terrible advice because, first of all, whatever's current today is not likely to be current when they get of a time to to do something about it. What they should learn is things that never change. They should learn fundamental things. And then they can judge the current things in light of that. Well, that is exactly what tyrants try to do. I mean, we are forever remaking our curricula in schools to fit the passions of the day. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a huge, cumbersome effort. It involves thousands and thousands of people. It involves enormous bureaucracies. Textbooks are chosen at the state level mostly, but several big states dominate the process. And the big textbook writers they work with the bureaucrats to put in what the bureaucrats say. And so it's always some kind of partnership between somebody who's supposed to have knowledge, a scholar, and somebody whose power has power, a bureaucrat. And that means we're rewriting the curricula, not in light of, because, you know, what the scholar's art is, is to look at a thing and see what it is. It is itself. Mm-hmm. You know, you and if you teach young people, uh, what what you have to learn is that they're, they're very good at thinking about everything that surrounds each thing. Where did it come from? What produced it? What does it lead to? But the first question always, what is that thing? Whatever that thing is. Get the habit of understanding things in their being as they speak to you. And if you do that, That means, by the way, that what the party or the ruler says about the thing is not dispositive. And that's why tyrants don't like that. I want to ask you a couple other questions here, moving to some other areas, too. Populism. You know, uh, Professor Larry Arn, Dr. Arn, president of Hillsdale College. You know, when I was much younger and studying these issues, populism came out of the really 1870s, give or take. It was much more uh, tied towards, I guess you could call it today, socialism. Uh, in 1876, they ran their own candidate who was a socialist. The whole movement was devoured by the Democrat Party, eventually Woodrow Wilson and so forth and so on. We hear this term populism thrown around all the time. Is populism per se 
what the founders had in mind in the Declaration with unalienable rights, natural rights, God-given rights, is it what they have in mind when they set up a republic with limited powers in the Constitution? Does the majority win the day? What, what does populism mean? Well, it, it, you know, it depends on what, as we were saying, first of all, words are transformed. They mean something different than they used to mean. So the, the left... For, you know, in its early stages was, well, actually in its middle stages, the first progressives were not particularly populist. They were aristocrats by bearing and outlook. But then they became very populist and they want direct rule, you know, referendum recall and initiative, all that stuff. And And what the founders wanted was something different. They wanted consent of the governed. And the, the, that's the first constitutional safeguard. Uh, and it's, by the way, that's as old as Aristotle. If the ruler has to get your permission to do things to you, then that means there's a limit on the power of the ruler. That's what consent of the government means. And then the Constitution is a very wonderful, and the best ever system in making sure that consent is real. And that means for people to give their consent, they have to give it intelligently. And that's why uh, we don't get to run any part of our government directly. Uh, instead, we have to wait for elections. And it's explicit, especially in James Madison, that that means that people will learn to think before they act. And, and they'll act better because of that. But it's certainly true that in the, the first doctrine of the American Revolution, the first implication of all men are created equal is no one has the right to govern anyone else without his consent. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the, the Bill of Rights really have nothing to do with populism either. It's more individualism, you know, versus the government. And there is, as you would tell me, to Tocqueville talking about this circle of liberty that surrounds every person uh, that is not to be molested or penetrated. Uh, and yet, uh, I do get concerned because we th throw these terms around and really in an ambiguous way. Uh, people talk about populism. Well, I don't want people voting over my property rights. I don't want the majority deciding my unalienable rights. They're unalienable rights. Um, and yet, um, what is that? The, Ber the Burkean trusteeship professor that talks about um, really the balance between representing your constituents but on the other hand doing what you think is right in a representative government and then they'll have the final say over whether you did it right or not something to that effect yeah representation is very important in the in the american political system the british do because there can that's an, another chance to think and talk right thinking and talking are the same thing and so uh, Churchill imagined the way the House of Commons used to work this way, too, was that the debates would go on every day and they'd be printed almost in full in all the big newspapers. And people would read them and argue about them. And they would be constantly forming their view. And then once in a while, there'd be an election and they would state their view just authoritatively. But along the way, there would be by-elections, they call them in Britain, which is just interim elections when there's a vacancy. And 
you know, they're, they're counting those right now in Britain because the, the Tories have a comfortable majority, but they're unpopular. And so they're losing by-elections. And that's a warning sign. In other words, the people are talking to them. But Churchill wanted the people to talk and think, just like James Madison did, and express their will over time and upon deliberation. And that's, you know, and that, that you know, look, look, what is this ballot harvesting about, by the way? In America, everything is mediated now. The media is, uh, nobody gets to talk to anybody else straight. Uh, you've got to, everything comes through the media. And even private conversations is Facebook now, see? And, and so what, what ballot harvesting is, is somebody looks you up on a roll, has a lot of money from George Soros or wherever, and that person brings you a ballot and tries to get you to fill it out right there. Or perhaps even, you never know, fill it out for you. And that means you're not the agent in voting to the same extent that you used to be. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, and to oppose that is to, you know, first of all, it's, it means you're a racist because there's only one crime now, racism. But it means that you're, you're, but what you're admitting when you propose that is you don't really think it's important for people to think. Uh, and, you know, we, we, that's explicit now, you know, I mean, who decided to lock down the American economy? You know, the answer is a few people. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, they're very artful at not taking responsibility for it. Uh, and it happens by a mass of officials, a swarm of officials, but they don't want people to get together and talk. And that's what the thing was about, really. Let's isolate the American people for the better part of a year, and then we can have an election under new rules that we have contrived. And that's what, you know, uh, in, in the pressures of politics today, only two opinions, only one opinion is permissible, and, it's, and the people who make it permissible say there's really only one other. And the one that's permissible is, it's the fairest election in American history. Yeah. And then and the other one is it was stolen and you're crazy because mm-hmm. there's no evidence of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's and if you say something else, you've got the world uh, mm-hmm. all, all over you. And see, just, to, you know, here's a here's a point about because I learned all those arguments 400 years ago and helped ha, learned them with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always thought that the ultimate repository of the health of the nation is in the people who are sovereign. Uh, Lincoln says the constitutional majority is the only true sovereign of a free people. And so I've always thought it's important to talk to a lot of people. And, you know, that's why you, you and I are involved professionally now, as well as personally, you talk to a lot of people and that's good. Right. Mm -hmm. And they talk to each other too. And to you and then to me. And so you want to foster that every way you can. You want to teach. If you know something, you want to teach anybody who wants to learn. Because it matters what our fellow citizens think, and we should have communication freely and often with each other outside the regular channels. There shouldn't really even be regular channels. Mm-hmm. 
Very, very good. I want to remind the folks we're here with Larry Arn, who's the president of Hillsdale College, who's sponsoring this program. You know, folks, as students across the country graduate from colleges and universities, I'd like to highlight a place where our young people receive the best classical liberal arts education in America. When these students graduate, they've studied the great books, the history of Western civilization in America, and the meaning and history of the Constitution. Now, can you guess what college I'm talking about? That's right. My favorite college, Hillsdale College. And by the way, it's tough to get into Hillsdale College. They have very, very high standards because they want students who are going to be able to work very hard and meet those standards. Hillsdale was founded in 1844 to offer the kind of education needed to preserve civil and religious liberty. And it holds true to that mission today while refusing to accept one penny of taxpayer funding, not even indirectly in the form of student grants and loans, because you know what comes with that money? Ties, just like the mob. Hillsdale students also buy by an honor code, which ensures a unity of purpose and fosters lively, civil, intelligent debate. And the best part, you can learn from Hillsdale for free, you, all of us, to run Primus. And there's a great in Primus out right now by none other than Larry Arn, the gentleman you're listening to about the battle over education. It's absolutely cri uh, critical. And so you get in Primus and by taking online courses on American history, the Constitution, and other subjects. Check it out for yourself. See for yourself. Learn more about Hillsdale at levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. levinforhillsdale.com. Larry Arn, let me ask you some additional questions here. Abraham Lincoln, Churchill, Thatcher, Reagan, what do these people have in common? Well, they were very exceptional people of a certain kind. Uh, they were prudential people. That means they're really good at making practical judgments. And practical judgments are made in, on the basis of two things. Uh, one is some principles that abide all the time. But then the second is how those principles appear and apply in circumstances, which shift all the time. Uh, Churchill writes of one of his ancestors, a great general, he was the finest, his mind was the finest weighing machine for practical affairs that has ever been known. And so what do you have to do? What's a great political speech? We don't get enough of them these days, but because uh, they're hard to write. Uh, great political speeches uh, begin and end in beauty. They talk about things that are abiding, things that we love because they're permanent and they last and they last because they're good. But in the middle they talk about what to do in these circumstances. And they always connect all that up. A great modern example, one of my favorite modern speeches, is Reagan's Time for Choosing speech. Beautiful. It's a, it's a tremendous speech, right? It's, a, it's an achievement. Uh, in the 20th century, Coolidge gave a speech on the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. It's just awesome. And, of course, nobody ever surpassed Abraham Lincoln. Uh, his, his speeches have two qualities, one, uh, either or both of two qualities. Uh, some, like the Peoria, Peoria speech, give a whole history of the country, uh, slavery in the country. And it's quite long, and it's a, a wonderful chain of reasoning. It 
carries you right along. It's clear because it's so articulate. And then it leads to a beautiful conclusion, which is freedom. How to make sure we get it in America. And then some of them are like poems. The, the greatest is the second inaugural address, which is a, what, a 800-word religious poem. It's just beautiful. And uh, he, he pronounces the judgment of slavery. Uh, the Civil War, he, he wants to bind, you know, what, what he wants to do is the opposite of what we're trying to do today. He wants to bind the nation together, and he uses the war between North and South as the reason it can be bound together. He says, uh, uh, if, if, this, uh, if this war is a judgment upon us, North and South, he says, if every drop of blood drawn by the lash but must now be repaid by another drawn by the sword, still it will be said that the ways of God are righteous altogether. Mm-hmm. And see, that means that, that this profound division between us can become a source of unity because we've all paid for it, you see. But, but now what we spend all the time doing is looking for the guilty. And, and we're doing that because if you can consign somebody to the realm of the guilty, then you can do anything you want to to them. And, you know, the, the modern bureaucratic state wants to do a lot to us. And then finally, because I know you have other things to do, Larry Arn, the judgment of the past through the eyes of the present, or somebody called this presentism, what do you, what do you, is that is that a sound way to look at history? Well, first of all, uh, you're stuck with history. It's the only body of knowledge to study. The body, it's only data, right? Because the present is very fleeting, and the future is obscure. And so there's this rich history. Lots of hap- lots has happened. I mean, if you want to read political wisdom, read Shakespeare or read Aristotle. And those two cover, what, 1,900 years, just between them, right? And so, but now there's another art, though, because I said what prudence is, is uh, judging, shifting things in light of eternal things. And so there's an art to that, right? And that means when you read history, it's sort of like exercising practical judgment. What part of this applies uh, and what can it teach us about our situation today? Like I'm, I'm, uh, working around to writing something about a strategy for America in this new world where we're not the big dog anymore. And I, I've hit upon it. Uh, I think I'm going to try to articulate it. Uh, we're like England. Uh, we're sort of like a little power uh, off the coast of the great landmass where the people live and where the resources are. 85% of the world's people live in Eurasia and Africa. And so we need a foreign policy. First of all, it'll be a peripheral policy. You know, it'll Taiwan, Japan, Korea, England, Portugal, all the old friends. And then we need a navy. And, and one of the reasons we need those things is that you can't have a free country if you're constantly at war. Uh, Churchill himself, who was very reluctant about war, never mind that he was good at it, even the best at it, 
he always tried to avoid it. And uh, he, and so the point is, we should be thinking based on knowledge of the past, what is our situation today and how can we predict what will happen? And the only way to do that will be to look at history. And you can either look at long history, you can go back as far as you can go and look at the relevant parts, or you can look at the last month. And if you look at the last month, you'll end up with a distorted view. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Uh, I always enjoy it. It's never long enough. With uh, Larry Arn, the uh, president of the great Hillsdale College, the greatest college in America, where they not only educate their students, they educate and inform the American people. And that's why we talk about it so often on this program and on radio and anywhere else I can talk about it, because you need to check out their site and you need to check out their courses and you need to check them out. And by the way, as I said, they don't take one penny in government money. So what does that mean? All their support comes from tuition and donations. That's it. So if you want to help them out, you can do that, too. It's always tax deductible. And Dr. Arn, Larry, I want to thank you so much, and I hope to see you soon, my friend. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to know you these many decades. Likewise. God bless you. You yeah. take care of yourself. God bless you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was a fantastic, I think it was fantastic. 45 minutes with Dr. Larry Arn. President of Hillsdale College. I hope you enjoyed it. I know some of the subjects are heavy, but that's what we do here. Substance. Important information about the founding, about freedom, about your lives. All the rest of it really doesn't matter a whole lot. So I'll see you next time on our special podcast. God bless. God bless.